You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 62, Theories of Consciousness. Consciousness is a thing, right? (laughs) It probably is. It probably is a thing. Probably. (laughs) So I've been doing a lot of reading about consciousness uh, in the past few years, and one impression I came away with is that there's not a lot that everybody agrees on. Even the existence of consciousness? Yeah, right, even that. Like, there are consciousness researchers who either don't believe in consciousness, or they think it's an illusion or a hallucination, or who think that what actually exists is so different from what most people think of as consciousness that it might as well have a different name. Fair enough, but today we're going to talk about some of those theories, right? Theories of consciousness? Yes. Theories of consciousness, yes. And approximately how many are there? Oh, probably about 20, uh, but it kind of depends on how you categorize them, like many things. Um, Mm -hmm. I heard one researcher say there are as many theories as there are researchers. Oh, God. (laughs) But but today, (laughs) I mean, people like disagree on little things, so it's tough to say like where one theory ends and another begins. Mm. But today, uh, I'm going to talk briefly about four. And these are the four that you're most likely to read or hear about in magazines or in interviews. Um, And so we're going to talk about them roughly in increasing order of popularity. Popularity, Jim, really? Isn't this science? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) What? (laughs) Are we all voting? Why why is this a popularity contest? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, in in this dusty corner of science called consciousness research, um, as I said, there's enormous disagreement. Uh, and this d- disagreement extends into which theories are best supported by the evidence. And p- mm-hmm. part of that is because the evidence that people point to is the evidence that their theory predicts. So there's not like agreed upon data to model, right? So every theory is kind of addressing its own hmm. evidence. Interesting. Anyway, there was a survey of consciousness researchers a few years ago that asked about which theories they thought were promising. Now, that was the word. Which mm-hmm. theories... Which the, Do you think this theory is promising? Mm-hmm. So, scientists and scholars could... and They could say yes to more than one theory, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the actual... The top one in that survey was some new theory. I can't remember the name of it, but it's very new. And everyone seemed kind of excited about it. So, I think that's why it was thought to be most promising, because no one had had time to severely criticize it yet. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, So we're going to talk about the winning ones that were, like, more established. Fair enough. So, what's first? So the first one we're going to talk about is the quantum theory of consciousness. That's the one by Roger Penrose, right? That's right. Yes, Mm. Sir Roger Penrose came up with the original idea and described it in his 1989 book, The Emperor's New Mind. And he's a physicist. He's a physicist. Yes, he is. So, on the one hand, we can ask ourselves, what on earth is a physicist doing making psychology theories? Uh, But on the other hand, he's super smart. And so, maybe we shouldn't dismiss any idea he has out of hand. Uh, But anyway, later, this theory was fleshed out by a man named Stuart Hameroff. um, And now, those two are the caretakers of this theory. And Hameroff, is he a psychologist? Uh, No. Oh. No, he's not either. So, he's, oh. he's a medical doctor who specializes in anesthesia. <laughs> an anesthesiologist? Really? Yes, he's an anesthesiologist. Mm. Yes, guess, that's what it's called. Yeah, and guess, as yeah. such, mm. his theory, which is called Orch-Or, 
uh, spends a good deal, good deal of ink trying to explain consciousness loss due to anesthesia. Orch, or is that like the orchestra of the OR or something? Is that what it stands for? <laughs> I, I actually can't remember what it stands oh. for, but technically the theory is called Orch, or, but just because that sounds weird to avoid jargon, we're just going to call it the quantum theory today. Okay, so give us the basics. Okay, so the basic idea is of this theory is that consciousness is due to quantum effects in the dendrites of neurons. <laughs> All right, time time for me to jump in oh, here. We're on, we're on Kim's. We're playing Kim's field now. Yeah, it's early early days, but let's let's go into the brain. Uh, time for a little neuron anatomy. So, for uh, our active listeners that um, may need a bit of a refresher, brain cells. Most of them are called neurons, and neurons get input from other er neurons through the branching arms called dendrites. So, if you can imagine a little head, uh, that's the cell body, and imagine the dendrites kind of arching out of that head, kind of like hair, but more like the branches of a tree. Um, that's literally where the word dendrites come from, dendros. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So uh, the dendrites are, I think of them like the eyes and ears of the neuron. That's how the neuron mm. takes in information. Fair. So in the dendrites, as well, in, as well as in many other parts of the cell and in many kinds of cells, there are structures called microtubules, which are generally thought to provide physical structure to the cell. Like a skeleton. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So the quantum theory of consciousness says that they're doing a lot more than that. Hmm. They have stuff in them that can be in states of quantum superposition, which means like in an indeterminate state, so it's neither this state or that state. And they think that this quantum uncertainty is what happens when we are uncertain psychologically, say, about a stimulus. So have you ever, you know what the Necker cube is? Mm-hmm, that sort of 3D wireframe picture of a cube, right? Right, it's like if you draw a cube, like mm -hmm. a transparent cube, like an ice cube on your piece of paper, right? Uh, that's that's the thing. And, you know, that, that's what we're talking about for the Necker cube. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it looks like the bottom square is in the front, and sometimes the top square is in the front, and you kind of, like, you can imagine it either way, like your brain or your mind yeah. kind of vacillates, right, between them both. Right, right. And what mm. makes this an interesting data point for consciousness studies, not just this theory, uh, is that we're never conscious of both of these interpretations at the same time. Mm. True, true. Uh, and if you don't know what the Necker cube is or you're having trouble picturing it, you can also think of the famous vases faces thing where if you focus on the one, it looks like a vase, and if you focus the other way, it looks like two faces facing each other. Basically, mm -hmm. you, you see it one way or the other, but not both. So, the quantum theory says that there is uncertainty about this at the quantum level, and when we focus on one particular interpretation of the Necker cube, there is a collapse of the waveform in the microtubules of the dendrites. What? <laughs> so, wait. As a, yeah, a neuroscientist, I'm struggling here. Doesn't this, it doesn't even have to do with anything of the firing of the neurons? No. The activity of the cells? Consciousness, consciousness no. is not the result of firing neurons. Mm. So, in this theory, the dendrites are theorized to be connected with gap junctions okay, uh, through which they communicate without any neuron firing at all. So, uh, um, do you want to explain what the gap junction is? <laughs> yeah, it's like an electrical communication, right? So, normally cells communicate in an electrical chemical fashion, and the prime way that cells communicate between one another is through chemicals called neurotransmitters, but gap junctions are, are considered yet another way of cell communication, actually, where it's just electrical. So they're, they're, there's a transfer of energy. A dendrite can transfer to another dendrite without an axon firing. That's my understanding of Yes, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But wait, don't psychologists already have a pretty good idea of how we perceive things under uncertainty? <laughs> yes, they certainly do. Yeah. For example, if I say bank, you could interpret that as a financial institution or the side of a river, depending on the context of the conversation. And just mm-hmm. like in the Necker cube, you're only conscious of one interpretation of bank at a time. But we know by looking at the brain that both interpretations are represented in the pre-conscious areas of your brain. And that has to do with neuron firing. Yes, it does. Exactly. Right. So, so if the quantum theory's explanation of perception is correct, then most perceptual psychologists are incorrect about how they think this all works, which does not sound very likely to me. Now, mm. Hammeroff, Hammeroff thinks that if you're like trying to choose between eating a tostada and a burrito, those two choices are represented with quantum superposition. Well, I would say it's the orbital frontal <laughs> cortex that's debating this decision. But anyway, let's go on. Let me suspend yeah, my... Well, mm-hmm. he said that in an interview, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, decisions like this are well studied, as you know, and often appear to work through the competition of different brain areas, which the quantum theory would not predict unless... Well, it doesn't predict it at all, but it, it, would, it would be consistent with that if gap junctions were so widespread that basically all of your neurons were connected by them. And, and I remember reading that, like, there was an old debate, you, you probably can put names to this, but there was a debate about whether the nervous system was one continuous thing or it was discrete neurons, like, sending messages to each other. Yes. This is kind of saying that they the, are. The, the answer yeah. that we've come up with is that it's actually more like one complete thing if, if there are enough gap junctions. Isn't that yeah. funny? That is funny, because that is the old perception of the brain until we had uh, the appropriate techniques to be able to look at a very high level um, in great detail as, as at the level of the synapse and until we had that you know scanning electron micrographs or even the microscope uh, we couldn't really see um, how closely they were not actually touching so the old theories of yeah yeah uh, brain connectivity is that it was like a giant net or reticula it was called Right, right. And so, and so now they're thinking that like most of psychology works the way psychologists think with neurons firing and communicating, except consciousness, which is done by quantum waveforms and gap junctions. So <laughs> fair enough. So That's what scary. is it? What about the evidence? Uh, well, let's just get the physics out of the way. So even Penrose says that it depends on physics theories that either have not been invented yet, or they are fringe, meaning they're not generally accepted by physicists even so it's not even a solid physics theory no it is not really solid okay well what about psychology so we'll look at the psych evidence some of the best evidence relates to anesthesia which uh is not so surprising because of hammer off um and anesthesia does have effects on the cells themselves because um and we anesthesia even works on bacteria which is kind of interesting so right there is something very interesting is that Anesthesia's reduction of consciousness, um, you know, it could be not based on suppressing whatever neuron firing, because if that were, if it were neuron firing, why would it work on a single cell organism like a bacterium, right? Um, but the idea is that some of the gas molecules bind to the tubulin proteins that are in the microtubules, preventing quantum superposition, right? So since consciousness is the collapse of superposition on this theory, the consciousness is stopped by this class of anesthetics. That's pretty interesting. Well, how does it explain other findings about consciousness? Well, it doesn't really, for the most part. So, um, you know, uh, and I, 
Like, why do we get less conscious of things as we practice them? Why is consciousness limited to only a few things at a time? Why can the contents of consciousness be redirected with attentional shifts? And the theory doesn't have any answer for these questions. Are you sure? I'm I'm quite sure. I've read many papers on it, and all that whenever they talk about what it predicts and evidence, they're always almost always talking about the physics. And I was at a conference with Hammeroff in India, and we were having breakfast together. And I just asked him these things point blank. This is before I'd started reading everything about consciousness. And I was like, Oh, how does your theory explain like uh, uh, automatization and lack of con- like reduction of consciousness during motor automatization? And after like three questions, he's like, Well, the really important thing is like which which uh, which kind of creatures can be conscious and which can't uh so he so he was like he basically didn't he 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 and the papers reflect that they are not particularly interested in trying to predict the behavioral things that consciousness psychologists have found well it sounds like it brushed you off (laughs) so how seriously is this taken in cognitive (laughs) science well, I don't want to hang hammer off out to dry. I mean, he's a nice guy. We had a great time walking around the uh, you know the Taj Mahal together. But um, <laughs> he was he was nice. But I will say that it is not taken seriously in cognitive science at all. Uh, there are several papers critiquing it by well-known cognitive scientists, and nobody you know, like you know how sometimes you'll read a paper and you'll say, well, assuming this theory is true, what can we do? Like, mm-hmm, what, what can mm-hmm. we explore or whatever? I, never, I just about never see that in cognitive science. Interesting. And the big survey I mentioned at the beginning didn't even have quantum theories as a category. Wow. Right? So, I suppose it would be part of the other category. So, they had a category for other, which was uh, thought to be promising by 21% of scholars. So, uh, I, I would say, like, at a max, 21% of consciousness scholars think it's promising, mm. which is pretty small but keep in mind that that's that is the entire category of other theories and and quantum consciousness is just one of them but the reason i wanted to bring it up in this podcast episode is because it's actually quite popular with the public and so i thought people would hear about it you know so Why? i thought people should know about what how it works well consciousness is mysterious quantum mechanics is mysterious so people i think kind of find it kind of fascinating to think that they might be related so i think they they think about oh everything's a quantum field and they it sort of tacks into this uh, uh, energy throughout the universe being related to your consciousness and meditation and and i think that's why i don't think it's a good fair enough fair enough okay well let's move on let's talk about another theory Kim is done with this theory. <laughs> Let's move. Let's go. <laughs> the next, all right. The next one we're going to talk about is in for integrated information theory, and this one is by a neuroscientist named Tononi. And in this theory, consciousness is a relationship between a bunch of units, like neurons, that can interact with each other in a particular way. They can change each other's states, and the more they interact in this special way, then the more conscious the system is. And what way is that exactly? That's the integrated information part. And it's mathematically complex, but it is something like mutual interaction and feedback. So what I mean to say is that the actual theory is a very dense mathematical equation, but it, it, like for purposes of this, it's basically like, can they um, affect each other in a recursive way, that kind of thing. So a feed-forward network... Okay, where there's just input on one end and output on the other end, and they don't, there's no like feedback loop or anything. That has no, that has zero integrated information according to their equations, you see? So it has to have like a feedback loop of some kind. 
I guess. And, and one assumption is that systems can vary in the amount of integrated information. Oh, yeah. And they absolutely do. Right. So that's I mean, that that's that's clear. Right. It's whether it means anything is the question. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, you know, like are there there are, even in, in AI, we have uh, neural networks that have feedback and neural networks that don't. Right. So um, but according to this theory, if the integrated information number calculated is above zero, the theory predicts that that system is conscious. Mm -hmm. And the higher that calculated number is, and I call it phi, the Greek letter phi, or phi, sometimes people say, the more conscious the system is. So, any system of well-connected neurons are, is conscious? Yes, according to this theory, right? So, now, there are a couple of strange predictions of this theory. So, first, it's only the ability of these neurons to affect each other that generates consciousness. They don't actually have to be affecting each other. They just need to be able to. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's say we have a bunch of neurons that are connected in the right way, but they're actually not firing enough to affect each other's firing, or they're not firing at all, okay? So if they were to fire, they would affect each other, but they just happen to not be, okay? It's like, I could send you an email, but I'm just not doing it, right? Okay, so the firing okay. Rate, if it, you know, this system, according to this theory, would be conscious, even though there's no information being communicated between the neurons. Mm. Okay? And I don't know if you've heard of cerebral organoids, but, like, scientists have created networks yes. of neurons in the lab, and they call them cerebral organoids, and they're natural, like, biological neurons that have been grown or, or whatever connected in the lab, and they can interact with each other, and they have this property, right? So, according to integrated information theory, these little cerebral organoids have a tiny little bit of consciousness... But if they're not communicating, then they're not conscious of anything. Not conscious of anything. Right. So not, they're conscious, yeah. but not conscious of anything. Right. So this is this is. Uh, a, my it's brain. A, I know. I know. My mind. It's a, it's, it's a controversial. <laughs> your your brain hurts, but your mind doesn't. Mm. So there's a controversial idea out there that it's possible to be conscious, but not be conscious of anything. It's called pure consciousness. Now this is. Uh, a bigger thing in meditative oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. traditions where mm -hmm. they think... So usually, like, you're conscious of... Like, you're listening to my voice, you're conscious of mm -hmm. my voice. And some people think every consciousness is like that. You, you try to look for consciousness without what you're conscious of, and you find nothing there. Hmm. But some people in deep meditative states claim that they get you can get to a point where you're conscious but not of anything, and it's, like, very, very pure. So... But but it's not something that many people feel in their entire lifetime. It's only something that people get, like, uh, in very unusual states. However, if we still want to consider it a data point to be explained in consciousness theory, then this theory has a pretty decent explanation of it. Because consciousness is the ability for these things to connect, not necessarily that they are connecting. So one way to think about it is consciousness is like a container. Um, and some beings have the container and some be beings don't. And so the conscious beings have the container. But if there's nothing in the container, it's pure consciousness. But if you are conscious of something, then you can think of the thoughts and perceptions kind of like in the container, like mm -hmm. the sound of my voice is in the consciousness container. But they don't have to be. Yeah, I think I get it. So like thoughts and perceptions are things we can be or are conscious of. Yeah. So what we're conscious of in the field is called the contents of consciousness, right? So in this theory... There's an, if there's information processing happening in the network, uh, and that network is conscious, then that processing constitutes the content, right? So, we can't be conscious of the color ultraviolet, but we can be conscious of 
seeing the color red, right? So our network is incapable of generating consciousness of what that color looks like. We'd be conscious of the concept of it, but that's different, right? Anyway, it's not just, but, but, but it's not just neurons. Interestingly, this theory talks about units and they just acknowledge that neurons are units, but other things could be too. Like what? So anything that can have like an on or an off state. So, you know, we talk about neurons firing or not firing. Uh, but in this theory, even a series of light bulbs could be units. And if they can, if they are connected with wires and they can turn each other on and off and affect each other's state, then they could be minimally conscious. Is this sort of where the theories about whether or not plants are conscious kind of emerge? I know you read that book. I, I've read that book. I've read a couple books on it. So, so whether or not plants are conscious, on this theory, they would say, well, let's look at the units involved. And those yeah. might be cells or they might be different parts of the plant. And then you could use their calculations to try to estimate what the fee level would be. And if indeed there's enough back and forth and recursion and whatever else, then they would say, yeah, the plant has got minimal consciousness. And then it's just a, a trick of trying to figure out, well, okay, well, what's it conscious of and, and that kind of thing. But it's pretty liberal with like, yeah, consciousness could be all over if there are a bunch of units, you know, but then some have like criticized it like, um, well, then the, the electrical system of Canada is conscious. <laughs> because because if you look at the units and the, you know so yeah, there are these sort isn't? of like reductio there are these well what isn't okay so these okay so these scholars say that the cerebellum is mostly a feed forward neural network mm -hmm. so the cerebellum has no consciousness even though it has more neurons than the cortex it's feed forward and so they say the cerebellum isn't conscious and indeed this is pretty well supported by brain stimulation and imaging studies that really conscious the seat of consciousness is not the cerebellum like nobody <laughs> thinks that no so and this gets weird yeah so do you want to say something more about the cerebellum no i well i would say like there's people argue we were, we're starting to realize how much more involved the cerebellum is in decision making so yes yes but it, it doesn't seem like doing anything to the cerebellum changes consciousness so Fair. It, it changes okay. other things but not mm -hmm. consciousness right Mm -hmm. uh, this also gets weird with artificial intelligence, right? So there's this question of whether AIs can be conscious or not. So the integrated information theory has an interesting prediction about this. They say that since the computers of today have physical components that are not integrated units, then no computer could be conscious because of the way the hardware is set up, right? Mm -hmm. So if we made a new kind of computer that had integrated units, then it would be conscious. And this is the weird thing. The software it's running does not matter at all. Right? Hmm. Mm, it could God. be an AI program that's talking to you, like ChatGPT. It could be playing Tetris. It could be a spreadsheet. To them, it doesn't matter. What matters, whether it's conscious or not, is looking at the physical structure of the computer itself. And that is an unusual aspect of this theory. Uh, it's not the content of the processing that determines whether or not the system is conscious. It's merely the relationship between the physical parts that make up the system. Interesting. Okay. Ready for the next one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Next one is called the higher order thought theory. And there are several of these, but we're going to specifically talk about one uh, that uh, philosopher David Rosenthal talks about. Wait, higher order thought. Do they abbreviate it as hot? They do. Hot. We have a lot of hot theories hot. in consciousness studies. Like cold theories? Are you making fun of my American accent now? Yeah, hot. I hear the hat. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> In Canada, mm -hmm. they say hot. Hot. Yes, because we're British. Hot. We're Br British, yes. Mm -hmm. So, what is um, higher, higher order thought? 
Okay, so broadly speaking, a higher order thought is a thought that is about another thought. Okay? So if you think my dog is cute, then that thought is about my dog. Right? So you mm. got a thought, it's about my dog. Uh, you think my dog is cute. It's about my dog. It's about cuteness. But a higher order thought is about thoughts instead of dogs. Whoa. Uh, so first, yes, your dog is cute. Say hi to Pistachio for me. But yeah, give me an example like of this. Okay, uh, sure. Yeah. So you don't believe that the earth is flat. No, right? I don't. But mm -hmm. you've, you've definitely heard of the idea. I have. Yes. So the flat earth idea is in your head. It is mm -hmm. in your memory. Mm -hmm. Okay. You have something mm -hmm. in your memory that says the earth is flat. But you probably have higher order thoughts about that representation that says that it's false. So you might know that there's a theory out there that the earth is flat. There are lots of YouTube videos about it. It's a people think there's a conspiracy. You've got all these beliefs around it. So you've got a belief. It's false that the earth is flat. Mm -hmm. So if your belief, it's false that the earth is flat, you can see that the thought is about another thought. The thought, mm -hmm. the earth is flat. You've got a thought about that. It's false. You see? I get it. But what does this have to do with consciousness? Okay, right. So according to hot theory, uh, you're conscious of a thought when you have the right kind of higher order thought about it. So let's just let's have an example. Let's say you're smelling cinnamon. You might have a representation of the smell of cinnamon represented in your head. Okay, so you have an olfactory system. It's processing it, whatever. If you have a higher order thought to the effect of, I'm experiencing the smell of cinnamon, then you have the right, roughly speaking, you have the right kind of higher order thought about it, and you're conscious of the smell of cinnamon. So to be conscious of the smell of cinnamon, you have another thought in your head saying that you're experiencing the smell of cinnamon. Yes, that's right. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the ambiguous word like bank, right? Mm -hmm. So you hear the word bank, we know that you have all meanings represented at lower levels in your brain. We already talked about that side of the river, financial institution, a kind of shot and pool, all those things are sort of represented, but you're only conscious of one at a time. So what the hot theory says, its explanation is that you create a higher order thought. Um, you know, I'm in the state of bank, meaning uh, uh, a river bank. Mm -hmm. And because you're only you only you have a hot about that one only, that's the one you're conscious of and not the others, even though the all those thoughts are in your head. But you're only conscious of the one you have a, a hot about. And by extension, if you're happy, you have a higher order thought that you are in a state of happiness. Right. Yeah. So this theory says you can you can have a state of happiness, but not be conscious of it. Because uh, being conscious of the happiness requires a, a thought to the to the effect of like, I am happy or I am in a state of happiness. Okay, but the one thing that seems weird is that if I'm experiencing very bad pain, I don't necessarily think to myself, I'm in pain. I just feel the pain. Yes, that's right. And that's because the higher order thought, it only makes the target of the thought conscious, but the higher order thought itself is not conscious. Oh. Mm. Right? So unless you have a, th that, unless you have a third order thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> How many heights? So when you introspect about your own mental state, you might recognize consciously that you're in pain. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, it, you might be in a hospital, you're in pain, and you're just pain, 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 and then you're like, wow, this is the worst pain I've been in. When you start reflecting on it, you're, you're sort of, now you're aware of the fact that you are in pain, and mm -hmm. that's like a third order thought. So then you become conscious of the hot. 
right? So you're like, I am in a state of realizing that I'm in pain, um, but you're never actually conscious of the top level, the, like the highest level, higher order thought. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I, okay, let's move. I think we have time for one more theory. Okay. Mm. So we're going to talk about the most popular one now. Mm-hmm. So the last one is the most popular among consciousness researchers, and it's called global workspace theory. Now, to understand this one, we're going to use a metaphor of a big workplace room with a large whiteboard. I like to think of that big room in um, Hidden Figures where they're all like, all mm. the guys in white you know, jackets or, or white shirts are sitting around doing their calculations, a big room, and there's a huge chalkboard, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine there's a huge like whiteboard or chalkboard. Now, each person in the room can get up, they can walk over to somebody else's desk, they can communicate with them, but the room is noisy and nobody can shout loudly enough for everybody to hear. So if an employee discovers something important enough such that everybody in the room needs to know about it, she can write it on the big whiteboard where everyone can see it, okay? And everyone can get in access to that information. Now, for the global workspace theory, consciousness is something being on the whiteboard. This theory says that we have a very temporary memory buffer, and it gets overwritten several times a second, and it's called the global workspace, and when whatever is represented in this workspace is what we are conscious of. And the idea is that this is broadcast to all the little subparts of our mind and brain. So the consciousness's function is to communicate important information, like in an all-points bulletin, to all the subconscious processes of the mind. It's like the whiteboard that everybody can see. I would call that the prefrontal cortex. But anyway, what determines what goes on in the whiteboard and what doesn't? Uh, Well, there's no one agent in charge of this, and the idea is that thoughts and perceptions and representations and plans and daydreams, they compete for access to the workspace, and only one thing can be on it at a time. One thing? But when I look like at a beach, I'm conscious of the water, the sand, the temperature, you know, all the things. Right, right. So, the one thing in this theory means one consistent interpretation of the world. Consistent interpretation? Right, yeah. Say so, more. So you yeah. see you see sand over there, you see water over there, and it all makes sense. It's all part mm-hmm. of a reasonable interpretation of the world. But even something as simple as the Necker cube offers two incompatible interpretations. Which side is forward? Mm. Because both sides cannot be forward, both interpretations cannot simultaneously be represented in the global workspace, and so they have to take turns. This reminds me of binocular rivalry. Oh, yeah! Yeah, binocular mm-hmm. rivalry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you show one eye one color, the other eye a different color, you're only ever conscious of one of them at a time. Right, right. So, global workspace theory says that this is because the eyes expect to be seeing the same thing, and the same thing cannot be completely two different colors, right? So, even though you can be conscious of a beach scene with lots of elements in it, you can't be conscious of two different colors in both eyes because they're incompatible. So, that's what they mean by one thing, one consistent interpretation. So, to make it completely simple, and maybe this is oversimplification, but if something is in the global workspace, we're conscious of it. And this seems to suggest that consciousness is kind of like an all-or-nothing thing. That's true. That's true. That's This is one aspect of global workspace theory that isn't very intuitive. Because um, our experience of the world sure seems to suggest that we are sometimes very conscious of some things and barely conscious of others, right? Like, oh, I was, I was just sort of conscious, right? And other theories like integrated information theory handle this pretty well, right? They say, well, it's phi, and how, however well it's connected, that's how conscious it is. But in global workspace, yeah, it's like there's no graded consciousness. It's either 
um, I think like Dennett calls it like a global ignition. It's either like everywhere in the global workspace and everyone has access or it's not and there's no in between. Hmm. So I know I threw out the prefrontal cortex a little while earlier, but where is this workspace supposed to be exactly? Oh, you want to get brainy, do you? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so Stan Dehane, uh, he expanded global workspace theory, which was mainly a psychology theory of uh, Bernard Bars, a psychologist. Uh, he, he made the global neuronal workspace theory, which holds that the workspace is the cortex and the thalamus interacting, which they call the tha thalamocortical system. No, I was going to say, this is interesting because when we think about how certain hallucinogens work, it's in the thalamocortical system, which we know hallucinogens like impact consciousness, right? Yeah, and, and um, there are slight disagreements between global workspace theory and integrated information theory. They both think it's cortical, but I think... They have, they have like subtly different differences, and I think they're engaging in a collaborative, or what is it, an adversarial collaboration or something? Adversarial. To come up. <laughs> have you heard funny. of this? No, no. Oh, it's cool. It's when it's when two two people who fundamentally disagree on something get together and run an experiment together, and they both agree on huh. how the experiment's going to be run, and it's sort of supposed to be like a critical test that they both agree is fair. That's so instead cool. of like everybody running their own experiments and the other saying, well, that's not right because of this, they they both agree to the experiment ahead of time. Huh. Adversarial collaboration. So apparently they're working on that, but but both of them think that it's something to do with the cortex and it's something to do with the thalamus. That that they agree on. Mm. But okay, so uh, do people endorse this global workspace theory? So this yeah, this is the most prompt this is like the most popular theory, but get this. Mm. In that survey where they asked about which theories you thought were promising, this was only rated promising by 36% of consciousness researchers, and that was the highest one. Whoa, that's not very high. Yeah. And higher order theory is, uh, higher order thought theory is in second place, and that's at 17%. So it's, I think it's really safe to say that we should approach this whole field with a whole lot of uncertainty and humility. Like, we really, we just don't know what's true. I mean, if the experts disagree this much, you know, I feel like, None of us should be very sure about anything with, with respect to consciousness. Yeah, and a lot of psychologists don't even want to talk about it. Yeah, that's true. You know, th uh, there used to be a really big stigma about it back, um, you know, in the 80s. Um, I think, like, originally consciousness was okay to talk about, like, with James and stuff. But then it went out of fashion, especially with behaviorism. But then in the 90s, it started having a resurgence. Uh, but still, yeah, a lot of people... Uh, they either they might be doing consciousness studies, but they won't use the word. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you if you're like asking people if they can see a stimulus and ask them to respond it, you're kind of asking them, you know, were you conscious of the stimulus? But they might want to avoid the word consciousness because it still kind of has a stigma. So you know, and it's so we're so uncertain that it's tempting to just throw up our hands and be like, well, we don't know, we just don't know. But unfortunately, consciousness is really really important. Yeah. Yeah, how so? So for many people, it's the foundational, it's a foundational and perhaps, and perhaps the foundational factor in ethics and morals. So generally, a lot of people, when they think about it, come to the conclusion that the reason that we treat anybody well or we shouldn't treat people badly is because they have conscious experiences and conscious feelings, right? And if a thing has no conscious joys or sorrows or pains or pleasures, like a chair, then we don't really have a moral obligation to it. Right. So, 
you know, there's a thought that if the universe had no conscious things in it at all, then it would be a world without any, really without any value or morality, right? It's just, it's just kind of empty and nobody can, nothing can suffer or feel joy or anything. So morality doesn't, re- it's kind of irrelevant to such a universe. This is getting heavy. Yeah, it is. So, you know, the question of like whether insects are conscious or not, for example, is, is I think of grave moral importance. Like I think that's really, really important. But at the same time, we're in a huge deep state of uncertainty about it. Like we're, we're so uncertain about human consciousness. But when we start trying to think about uh, insect consciousness or, you know, th- then a lot of our theories don't make sense or their, their predictions are, un- are, are ambiguous. So it's, it's, it's really hard. So what should we believe? I, I'm of the opinion that you should, that everybody pretty much should believe what most scientists in the field believe. Now, that's not to say that scientists are always right. Of course, there are classic examples where scientists were completely wrong about things. And, you know, um, but that doesn't mean that the people who disagreed with them at the time were rational. <laughs> but yeah. like, this is basically why we believe in humans cause climate change, right? So you and I aren't climatologists, but we believe that humans are causing climate change because somewhere between 97 and 99% of climatologists think that humans are causing global warming and we should take their word for it, right? That is a lot closer to consensus than theories of consciousness. <laughs> That's, that is true. No kidding. But, you know, still, I think if you are a consciousness researcher yourself, I mean, I mean, unless you would like, this is your field and you're a consciousness researcher with your own theory, which will give you a pass and let you believe your own theory kind of thing, you should probably believe the theory with the most evidence and popularity among experts. So for me, I think global workspace theory is the most defensible uh, but acknowledging a great deal of uncertainty about it. And, Jim, are insects conscious? What do you think? Oh, God. I th- <laughs> we, we definitely don't have time for that. So I think we'll, <laughs> maybe we'll do another... We'll have to do an episode on animal consciousness in the future. I would love that. You know, we could ask, are, cr- are crickets conscious? Or do they just have a conscience? Do you get it? Jiminy Cricket? <laughs> Next, Mining the Brain. Crickets. Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.